Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I want people to walk into a place where I'm working at or where I live and just feel really warm. And I think that's a therapy for me, maybe because of the stuff I went through with my, you know, my family and I don't need anything just dark. I really love the light. This is Death, Sex, and Money. You know, you'd never get a crowd this big at my funeral. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. That bass player's a babe. And need to talk about more. Book a band, blow up a few balloons. People pay out the ass for that shit, don't they? (laughs) I'm Anna Sale. Rafael Sadiq grew up in Oakland, California. He was just out of high school and hanging around a studio with friends when they got a call. It was a guy who was lining up musicians for Sheila E.'s band for her world tour with Prince. He said, is there anyone up there that can sing and dance and play bass? And that was a quote from Purple Rain. Can anybody sing and dance? Uh I went next day. I went to the audition. There was maybe 20 to 30 people outside, like bass players, sort of dressed like Prince. Um, I had like 501s on, like a derby jacket. And I just remember somebody else had already got the gig. And when I started playing, they gave me the gig. Wow. And next thing you know, we're in Tokyo, opening up for Prince, you know, singing Erotic City. When you were on your way home from that audition, did you know that your life had changed? I just remember I, I didn't need an unemployment check anymore. In the 35 years since, Rafael Sadiq has become an institution in American R&B music as a bass player, singer, songwriter, and producer. He co-produced the song Cranes in the Sky with Solange. And he won a Grammy for Love of My Life with Erica Badu in common. He was nominated for an Oscar last year for co-writing Mighty River with Mary J. Blige. And he changed sex forever when he made this song with D'Angelo. I 
have loved Rafael Sadiq since the late 80s, when he, his brother, and his cousin burst on the scene with their band, Tony, Tony, Tony. By then, he was already going by Rafael. He changed his name during that world tour with Prince and Sheila E. Rafael was born Charles Ray Wiggins. His family called him Ray. He's his mom and dad's only child together. His mom had three children before him. His dad had eight. So I was the mistake child. They called me the mistake child. The surprise. No, my dad said I was the mistake. One hundred percent. He he says it in laughs just like that. He like you were a mistake, boy. He said you're a good one, but you were definitely a mistake. So, when you're six years old, and you start playing bass, mm-hmm. why why the bass? Well, at, at six, I wasn't really playing the bass at that time. I think I was playing a, I was I was playing a broom. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking a six year old boy no, trying to hold a bass. No, I was definitely <laughs> scraping a broom and the broom sticks all over the floor. My sister Janice used to hold like the, a lamp over my head and give me a spotlight. And I think what started me playing bass was a Motown record by Marvin Gaye, um, "How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You." Uh-huh. That's when I identified it. I didn't know what the name of the, the instrument was called, but I kept hearing this instrument. And then my brother Dwayne. At his house, he was playing guitar. So I just saw the bass. Like, that was the instrument I could play if I wanted to hang around Dwayne. How many years older than you is Dwayne? I think Dwayne is five years older than me. So you're like little brother trying to hang out with Oh, yeah. Brother. I was. They used to call me, um, they called me little old man because I was always hanging around older guys. Some guys, I was in a couple gospel quartet groups. So maybe at, when I really started playing around, you know, fourth, fifth grade, I was in I was in bands with guys that were already sixty years old. What would you wear when you were performing with these older men? Were, were you wearing clothes that were similar to what the older men were wearing? Yeah, I, I was wearing the exact same suits they were wearing, except I could never uh, get my suits from the same place. You know, <laughs> yeah, you had to go to the boys' department. <laughs> I had to go to the boys' department to try to find a suit to match their suits. A buck 15 kid, I look like a little little punk, but when I pick up the bass, she'd be like, who is that man? <laughs> who is that bad boy playing the bass? Bass is my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm a badass bass player, if I have to say. So I carried it with me all the time, so I know with the bass I can move the world. When you were a little boy, when you were going to church, was it, um, were you excited to go because of the music, or did you get something else out of it? I was only going for the music. I didn't. I didn't get anything else out of church. Uh, I did like the pastor. The pastor's name was Reverend Ed Nation. He looked exactly like Martin Luther King, and um, he was really nice. Um, he would always ask me if I loved the Lord. It's funny. Like that, I think that was his thing. When you walk out to church, he would stand by the door and he go, like, "Do you still love the Lord?" You know, if he didn't see you in a while, you know, when you come back, you're like, "Do you still love the Lord?" How do you answer that question? You gotta say yes. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? That's what you're taught to say and do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it was his way of saying, you know, 
you know, stay focused out there because you, you know, you have for me. For me, church was um, it it replaced the idle time that you would have as a kid in a neighborhood like Oakland. In our neighborhood, we had to create stuff, so it was mainly trouble. It was like my friends were like, "Leave it to Beaver," like the the bad guy, like you know, we always wanted Eddie. To eat. Yeah, Eddie. We had a bunch of Eddies. Not not too many. Not too many Beavers. You were a young kid when you experienced loss for the first time. Um, you lost your first sibling when you were seven. Yeah, yeah, I lost Alvy. Alvy was um, he was one of my brothers I looked up to, even though I was seven. You know, you just you know I really looked up to him. How old was Alvy? Alvy was twenty-seven, and I remember my dad telling him that his friends weren't his really weren't his friends. And and my brother looked at my dad and smiled. They looked alike. And he was saying, what you talking about, old man? And with a smile on my dad's look, I'm telling you, they're not your friends. They're going to kill you. The next weekend, he they killed him. Rumor has it, it was over like $12,000. He had $12,000 in his pocket. I'm sure the story's a little different from that. Um, they shot him like twice in the chest and one in the heart. And um, remember my dad, we drove to the place where my brother's body was at. And when we got there, um, the gurney had came downstairs, and they and they pulled back the sheet so we could see his face. I don't remember looking, but my dad did. My dad is hard, you know. He's from Texas. He looked at my he looked at my brother. He was like, yeah, that's him. And he looked at me. He said, "Let's go." And we got in the car, and and I'm sitting in the back seat. And I'm looking because I want to, I want, I want, in my mind, I want to kill this guy. You know, that's all I could think of. I'm going to kill this guy when I see him. You know, seven, I'm thinking I'm going to kill this guy. I always had that memory. I always, I always um, see my story like the the movie City of Gods, the, the, mm-hmm. the kid with the camera. Yeah. I feel like I always documented everything. And nobody, nobody in my family ever talks about it. I've, I was always in these spots where I seen a lot of things in a family that nobody ever talks about. And you're just recording it as a kid. Everything. Was there a funeral? Yes, there was a funeral, and I remember them calling names, and it was the worst thing ever, man. They, they like, they were like, Charlie Wiggins, and that's me. Car two. To and line up in the funeral procession. To get inside of one of the cars. Yeah. The limos. Yeah. I never liked limousines after that. Never. <laughs> never liked limousines after that. And then later on, that's when I became an entertainer, and they would go, do you guys want a limo or a van? I was like, a van for sure. I'm still occupying, but inside I'm dying. Then I broke your heart, my friend. Coming up, Raphael talks about substance abuse and its role in the deaths of two of his other brothers, including one who died of a heroin overdose. I just always thought about did he know before he approached this chemical that that was going to be the determining factor for his life, that he was never going to be able to get out of it? I don't, and I always wondered that about a lot of people. I mean, you've seen so many people, you know, walk into rapid fire, and but they see everybody else falling down just doing it. Why, why would you do it? In last week's episode, we shared our listener Crystal's story about going through her son's stillbirth. 
We also created a spreadsheet where you can share the things you've watched, read, done, or listened to if you've been through pregnancy loss too. And it's been amazing watching this spreadsheet get filled in in the week since. Several of you recommended the book It's Okay That You're Not Okay by Megan Devine. Crystal suggested the documentary Don't Talk About the Baby. Another listener said planting a tree as a type of memorial helped her. We also got several emails from listeners. One named Lindsay emailed about choosing to have an abortion at 23 weeks because her child had been diagnosed with severe brain abnormalities. This kind of loss is grossly misunderstood, she wrote, and added, we make the choice to protect our children, to take their future pain on as our own. If you've been through any kind of pregnancy or infant loss, share what's helped you on our spreadsheet. You can find it at deathsexmoney.org slash pregnancy loss. On the next episode, I talk with a husband and wife who've been married for more than 50 years about falling in love, parenting together, and cross-dressing. That was probably the roughest time in our marriage when I came out publicly. I felt like it was a choice. And I didn't really understand it. And I didn't understand why he couldn't just... Act normal. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I want to let you know that Raphael and I talk next about a suicide in his family, which includes some graphic content. Fast forward two and a half minutes if you want to skip it. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Something keeps calling me. I feel the burdens on me. Something Rafael Sadiq's latest record is called Jimmy Lee. It's named for his brother, who died of a heroin overdose when Rafael was in his mid-30s. By the time his brother Jimmy died, Rafael had long been careful about alcohol and drugs. He'd watched another older brother, Desmond, get addicted in the 80s and then die by suicide. He found himself smoking drugs and, like, maybe putting it inside of a joint. And he killed himself because he couldn't he couldn't stop, and he was embarrassed. Mm. And I don't think the family made him feel that good about it. They were trying to, you know, give him this come-to-Jesus thing, but it didn't work. And he he uh, had an argument with someone in our family about it, and he went home to my dad's house, and he took my dad's double-barrel shotgun. He shot his head off, completely off. And me and my dad and my brother cleaned it up. They took the body, but... Being the type of person my dad is, he was a janitor. He was the person who cleaned, so he didn't call the chemical people. We actually cleaned it up. 
I'm sorry. Yeah. When that that cleaning cleaning the room sounds like another moment where you were yeah filming it like watching mm-hmm. it observing it um how do you how did you grieve as a as a young man what do you remember did you cry no i didn't cry i just i i think i never dealt with it you know we don't you know black people don't go get therapy they just don't they just think they <laughs> they just think they could deal with everything or you don't even know to even ask you know but I just dealt with it. We, I just cleaned it up, and the weird part, I could smell it for months and months and months because we didn't wear any face mask, you know. And when you drink water and the, the glass cover your nose, you could just smell blood, mm. you know, for months and months and months. And Still no therapy mm, for you? No, I think my therapy was probably all this music that I've been doing. I've been thinking about it lately, but I think it music was my therapy. It was. It had to be. Describe for me the space where you make music most. What's it look like? It's a huge live room that you can record a 40-piece orchestra in. There's a, a Yamaha grand piano sitting there. I'll start a song from sitting on the grand piano. I love piano because the notes ring so long that you can try and figure out where you should go next and if it makes you feel good. Um, There's a... Uh, a rack to your left that has over 35 snare drums, mood lights in the air in a circle, look like Star Wars at the top, 30, 40 guitars and basses sitting around them, and a huge glass window that looks out into the studio. Like It would be like going to like a, one of the most beautiful places you can ever record. And I'm, I, I had a chance to have Stevie Wonder in my studio a few times, and Stevie says to me, he said, how does it feel to have your own beautiful studio away from all that bullshit out there? That's the first time I heard Stevie on the curse. Like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, did he just curse? I heard Stevie. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. But, and, but How does it feel? Great. Do you have a name for your studio? Blakesley. What's that name mean? Blakesley is the name of the street my studio is on. So when I bought the building, <clears throat> I think my mortgage was like $10,000 a month. So I didn't have any time to be all cute and be trying to name it Paisley Park. <laughs> I, was, I dropped the drum machine on the desk, got the key, and started making music. And they were like, what's the name of the studio? I was like, what's the name of the street? Blakesley Recording Studio. <laughs> Bam. That was it. You still paying on it? It's paid for. Congratulations. Thank you. This place is crowded. Don't know about you. I need some sex. Some sex with you. Cause you're on my mind. I feel like your um in my life, your music was very uh important to me in figuring out sexiness. Like like I can picture being in my bedroom in West Virginia when I'm 12 listening to your music. <laughs> um, I want to ask about romance for you. Okay. You're 53? Yes. 
How how big a role does like a romantic life play in your life right now? Huge, very like because I, I was I figured out I was I dated someone for I dated I'll say her name. Her name is Carolyn Cristiano. She deserves that. I think I dated Carolyn for twelve years. She likes to say fifteen. <laughs> Yeah, but she didn't really want to be married. She wasn't a pressure type of girl. She just, she like Marvin Gaye said, the vows shouldn't read. We should stay together to death do us part. We should, they should be rewrote. They should be, we should try. So she wasn't into marriage. And I was like, cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> works. It works. <laughs> um, perfect. So, yeah, I think it. I think I was married in my mind. I was married to music because I found music in my room in East Oakland on 94th. And the girls in my life were mistress at the time. Hmm. You know, they were they were second, even though I would never say that. I, I never liked when guys would say, you know, music is first in my life and my girl second. My music is everything. I never wanted to sound like that. I never told anybody that, even though I guess it was, you know, it's the only thing that I never broke up with. I broke up with a ton of girls. I've never broke up with music. Are you a single man now? Yeah, I'm single now, but I I, I don't want to be in... I do want something... Somebody I could just kind of just come home to, talk to, laugh with. Somebody that doesn't want something from you for a material thing. It's kind of hard now because everybody can, you know. My mom always told me, she said, you know, Ray, make sure you get your girl that just that has something. My mom used to always want me to date Janet Jackson or Whitney, <laughs> or Whitney Houston. Don't be dating them girls that, like, you know, if you get sick or something, they're going through your pocket looking for, you know, a five cents because they can't even afford to buy butter. I just thought That's good advice. Yeah, it's really good advice. My mom is no joke. She had it down. How much do you get to see your mother now? She's just in Sacramento. I just have to jump on a flight and go see her. But now I, I see her like at least once every two weeks. And she's 87, and she FaceTimes me all the time. And she has this fish fry she does on Friday, and I don't even I don't eat fried food unless I go home because that would upset her if I didn't eat her fish, her catfish on Friday, which is so good. Then I'm, I'm like, okay, can we do it on Saturday too? <laughs> Raphael's father, Charles, whom he was named for, died a few years ago. He had heart failure and dementia, and Raphael was right by his side when he went. The funny thing about him, he loved to hear us play music and play guitar, but when he was about to go and he couldn't remember anything, I tried to play this blues song for him, and he looked at me like he wanted to kill me. He did not want to hear Hoochie Coochie Man on the way out. Hmm. He looked at me and frowned. <laughs> he remembered, like, nah, this is not a good record to be listening to right now. You turn that one off. Now, he was just, uh, he was just great all the way, and he did such a great job with me. It was almost like he never died. You feel like that? That's how I feel. So I, I felt <clears throat> I wasn't really sad. I didn't even want to see him. I didn't even look at him in his coffin because I didn't want to remember him like that. And he wasn't really about funerals, anything like that. He didn't like them. So I, I didn't go up to the front. I left. I, left, I actually left a little early. 
I spoke. I had something to say. Then I, I went to get something to eat. And then I went to the studio. It's interesting to me that after seeing your brother up close after he'd been shot and your other brother after he'd shot himself, like you you chose to to control what visuals you had when your father passed. Yeah, I just I just never like I'm not scared of death or anything like that. I just don't like the ceremony of uh, a funeral. It's just I like the New Orleans type funerals, you know, when they just marching out the second line bands every I like that. I just feel like the American funeral is just it's out of style to me. You know, my dad was had way more style than that. I'm like, you know, but I couldn't be the, the brother that's, okay, we're going to freak this funeral out. We're going <laughs> to fly this one out. Dad's going to be like, it's going to be no coffin. We're going to have an 8x10. Dad's guitar and his Fender Tweed amp in there. They would have lost it. But that's the way he he would have wanted to rock. But I couldn't, you know, I'm, I'm the baby boy. I couldn't go in there suggesting all these different things. So I just I just made my own visual. That's Raphael Sadiq. His new album, Jimmy Lee, is out now. And I've created a Spotify playlist of my favorite Raphael Sadiq songs and collaborations. It includes all the songs in this episode, plus some other really great ones. There's a link on our website, or just search for us on Spotify. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Zandra Ellen, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern, Emily Nadal, worked on this episode, too. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And we talked about suicide in this episode. If you need to talk to someone about suicidal thoughts or about how to help someone you love who you believe may be in danger, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So Raphael said he's ready for a steady romance, but he told me, He's realistic about what his 53-year-old body is up for. I seen Chris Tucker one day, and the first joke he told, he said, you know, that's how you know you're getting older when a girl calls and she like, can I come over? And you're like, well, like, you can come over, but we ain't having sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's the difference now. I, I got important things to do tomorrow. I'm not just, you know, I'm just not about to just kill my back for you. I got to love you to be doing this exercise. <laughs> Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 